Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Hello, welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. My name is Paul Tarsi and we have a brilliant show for you this month with Les Flacker joining us to talk about his friend Don Nichols and his shadowy past, get it? And Joe Bradley has investigated some of the wonderful shadow single-seaters and sports cars which uh, Don Nichols created. Welcome, Paul Church. Hello, everybody. How are you, Paul? We're uh, we're all pretty good uh, here in uh, here in the, the South Coast. There seems to be a lot happening, sort of behind the scenes, but a lot of it isn't in reality, is it? No, that's quite right. I think the theme that's rapidly developing in these news updates is um, the use of the phrase online. And as a few examples, the Royal Automobile Club's 2020 Historic Awards were yet another event forced into a virtual format. And uh, there were some winners in there who were uh, notable in the historic circles. For example, uh, long-time rally enthusiasts Peter and Betty Ann Bonham jointly took the Lifetime Achievement Award for uh, more than three decades of involvement in the historic rallying community. And uh, there are a couple renowned for their willingness to help out other competitors whether it be with Peter's legendary ability to get a car running again, aided <laughs> by his copious spares kit. And there's a man you need to know, isn't it? <laughs> or um, Betty Ann's unfailing positive attitude. And uh, yeah, they've been an asset to everything they've ever competed in. And uh, most recently, have really specialised in some of those long-distance multi-day rallies. And just to give just one example, on the uh, 2007 Peking to Paris event, they spotted a stranded Itala in the Gobi Desert. And that's the phrase I'm never going to use again in my entire life. How obscure is that? <laughs> and with Peter unable to repair a broken crankshaft, I think some people, things are beyond a copious spares kit, obviously. They towed their rival for nine hours and numerous tow rope failures before finally camping for the night, only to find in the morning they'd camped one sand dune away from actually the official night stop. But, uh, yep, congratulations to Peter and Betty Ann. Now, um, competitive event of the year went to the HSCC's Legends of Brands Hatch Super Prix in July 2020, which took place with a large entry, but also under the new protocols required due to COVID. And all of that was really organised in a timescale that would have been inconceivable in a normal season. MSV played their part in ensuring that everyone who attended Brands Hatch over the weekend was kept as safe as possible. And it was one of the first positive signs that we would see some racing again in 2020. So again, congratulations to the HSCC and in particular everyone involved in pulling that one off. And uh, the GT and Sports Car Cup, which is uh, a series of period specification cars from the 50s and early 60s, which would have raced internationally and in national championships, took the race series title. And uh, congratulations to Flavian and Vanessa Marces, who've uh, run the series since 2007. And it was commended not only for the quality of its on-circuit activities, but also for the social side of the series. God, I love a good social side, haven't you? 
and the driving standards were praised in particular for the safe running of a race at Castle Coombe last year in very wet weather and I really mean that some championships everyone races and goes home other championships they stay around and there's people still talking in the paddock into the evening and I think really that's what motor racing is all about of course it's not just the UK that's on lockdown you know events and venues across the globe are currently not open to the public and uh this is a bit of a pain if you've actually just gone to a lot of work preparing for a large audience. But uh, Le Mans organisers, the ACO, have got around that problem by putting their new exhibition featuring the Porsche 917 in the, in the museum at Le Mans online or, well, specifically on YouTube. Two episodes are currently live. And while there is at present only a French narration, the uh, YouTube automatic subtitles do do a valiant job at translating that for you. And uh, let's look at it this way. At the very worst, you get to look at some stunning race cars. If you just go to YouTube, search for the official Van Cathero de Mont channel and you will find the Expo Virtuelle Porsche 917 episode one there and ready to go. Is that your, is that your anorak I can hear zipping up? Um, I've always claimed just to be a gilet rather than the full anorak, but perilously close <laughs> these days, I think. Yeah, I think you're getting closer and closer. For the last few years, you and I have uh, enjoyed a few days in Paris around this time of year because... Uh, you know that that's one of the things, but also a, a February trip to the um, the old Royal Agricultural Show site in Stoneley. That's right. Yeah, Race Retro is always always a fascinating show for its almost willingness to embrace everybody. You know, you have the high tech stands at one end of the show and uh, people selling spares from old tables at the other, and uh, everything in between, which I love for it. But uh, unfortunately, that should really be happening this almost as we're speaking. To be quite honest. But uh, Race Retros, again, was a forced virtual, basically. So they run a weekend of uh, highlights from their uh, 18-year history. And I hadn't realised it was a full 18 years of it either, with interviews and, in particular, action from their popular rally stage that uh, often sees those Group B cars in action, which are always a real crowd-pleaser. It's interesting to hear you, you talk about so much of this being online. And, and I suppose whilst lots of events have suffered cancellation, postponements uh, over the course of the last year, um, it means there's even more to see online and particularly perhaps for fans of Goodwood events. It is actually, yes. I thought it was worth mentioning that uh, the Independent Goodwood Photographers Guild have actually moved their exhibition online. And, uh, yeah, you know, a sign of the times and just showing that organisations big and small are having to react to the uh, the reality of the world that we're currently living in. So uh, if you actually go to www.igpg.photography, I love IGPG, it's not easy to say, and check out the images and you can actually vote for their picture of the year. And I do urge everyone to go and have a look because there's some fantastic pictures there. And, uh, yeah, an organisation well worth supporting. Yeah, and, and obviously the, the important bit in all of that is independent uh, that these are these are people who are doing it as much for fun as for professions I think and I think that's yeah and for the love of it and uh, yeah nothing wrong with that at all also of course there are some things that are happening in the real world aren't there that's right yes and sort of sh- you know nice shoots of uh, positivity and things happening for example the HSCC have confirmed that they're going to be running four races for uh, a new 1980s production car challenge this year with uh, the opener at Snetterton in April. And uh, the idea is that's going to be open to cars with standard body shells, only minor modifications to engines and suspension. And uh, although, as is usual in production series, you're not allowed in if you've got a caterer. I sometimes wonder how <laughs> caterer bonus feel about that, but uh, you see that in an awful lot of regs these days. 
Um, the car's going to be, as usual, split into classes based on engine size with a separate class for turbocharged cars and on treaded tyres. Now, the HSCC already run historic and 1970s road sports series, so covering the 60s and the 70s, and they are both well supported. So for them, it's almost a logical follow-on and uh, potentially offers an outlet for some great cars. You know, the series was originally really planned to come into fruition last year, and they actually ran a test, test race at Cadwell which featured a grid ranging from a, a Vauxhall Nova. I remember Tony Lanfranchi in a Vauxhall Nova many, many years ago to an wow. Audi Quattro. And, um, but, you know, if you stop stop and think to the 80s, there are some fantastic cars from that period spring to mind. Um, you know, I'm not fully sure the Cortina Mark IV I owned at the time will be featuring. <laughs> but it was a very nice car, I'll have you know. And, uh, uh, but organisers suggesting that cars could be, you know, the Alfa Romeo GTV 6, uh, BMW 3 Series, the Ford Fiesta XR2, the Honda CRX, and if anyone remembers the One Make Series for those, they were cracking little cars. Morgan Plus 4, Porsche 944, Toyota MR2, or even some VW Golfs. So, you know, it's potentially a cheap and rewarding route into the sport with a strict cost controls. So it's really entry-level budget. And, uh, you know, if it's something that can bring more and more people into our sport, then, uh, yeah, it has to be a fantastic move. You were saying about your Cortina Mark IV. I'm just thinking that I do remember a Cortina Mark IV racing. And more to the point, I remember who drove it, which will surprise you. Go on. I, I didn't even know one race. So, uh, yeah, very interested in this one. Noel Edmonds. Noel Edmonds drove a Mark IV Cortina in, uh, really? in the production saloon category in whatever it would have been. Okay, so I, think, I think some instant Googling once we finished recording this in that case. <laughs> I mentioned, Paul, that you and I have sat there eating snails and smelling of garlic in Paris during the early part of the year for the last several years and we didn't get to enjoy that because we didn't get to retromobile this year that's also being a victim of the covid pandemic but some events that they would otherwise have run still went ahead that's right. Now, a major part of Retromobile, and probably one of the most exciting parts in some ways, has been a major sale by the Arcurial Auction House with some fantastic competition cars on sale of it. And that actually went ahead online and uh, raised 18 million euros with some significant competition cars going under the hammer. Now, the headline lot was, and I think we mentioned this last time out, the, uh, the Matra MS670 that won Le Mans in 1972 in the hands of uh, Graham Hill and Henri Pescarolo. It was then raced by Matra in the 1973 World Championship of Makes. I always thought that was one of the strangest World Championship names, but uh, that's what it was <laughs> called at the time. And, uh, you know, the car took a win at Zeltweg in the hands of Pescarolo and Gerard LaRousse. So uh, this is a car with a lot of history behind it. Obviously, it became, then became a show car for Matra and entered their museum in 1976 before actually being restored and going back on track in 2010. Now, the car, complete with the uh, Matra V12 engine. Now, I've never heard one of these myself, but I've been assured that it is a magnificent sound that this car makes. Oh, I have, and it is. (laughs) Now, the car went for 6.9 million euros and uh, is in full running order as it was sold. So uh, hopefully that's going to be a highlight of many historic events if uh, that's what the new owner is planning. Let's just hope that's not going to be tucked away somewhere to uh, hope, you know, with someone seeing that as an investment. And it is a car that we're actually going to see going out there 
Now, we mentioned Group B rally cars were being very popular earlier on, and uh, there was a number of those on sale. And uh, that was quite, it was quite interesting is that they went for widely varying prices, which is possibly showing the popularity or maybe the scarcity of certainly certain models. Now, it would seem that the entry-level Group B car, if that's what you're thinking of adding to your garage, is uh, the Metro 6R4, where an example went for 240, sorry, 244,000 euros. Still no small sum. No. Nope. What an, an RS200, Ford RS200, always one of the prettiest cars I always thought, is slightly better at 381,000 euros. Now, a gorgeous Martini liveried Lancia 037. Again, I'm going to have to stop saying a gorgeous looking car because they are all <laughs> fantastic big <laughs> cars. Just, just went over the half half million euro mark at 548,000. And uh, it's slightly newer stable, mate, a, a Lancia Delta Integrale. Both of these cars in full Martini livery went for 810,000 euros. Now, this was a French sale and there was a Peugeot 205 T16 Evo 2 on, on sale. When that almost made the million euros mark at 977,000, despite actually some quite confusion over which car it actually is, because it turns out the factory were quite happily, and of course, remembering that these are cars that have to run on the roads, so they're road legal, were swapping number plates around on cars at the time. And there is actually a little bit of a uh, confusion as to which events this car actually did. So even even with that history as whatever, it almost matched the, the uh, million euro mark. But the star of the show was a 1998 Audi Sport S1 Quattro. And according to the auctioneer's notes, and you'd think they'd be the people who know, um, no great rallying history, but it went for an amazing two million euros, which makes you really wonder if the car had been one of the, car, the Audis that had won a title at the time, how much that would have actually cost, you know, and how much that winning provenance would take you well over the two million mark. It's and it's it's interesting to see rally rally cars now getting into that seven figure kind of um, value because those cars a few years ago were probably destined to do rallycross as uh, as was then because hmm. there was a time when rallycross was all about the redundant then group b rally cars and we'd see things like 6r4s and peugeots and things out there batting round brands hatch or wherever uh, at ridiculous speeds that's right and these are cars that were probably sold off to privateers uh, not a lot of money realistically at the time by the factories who were you know probably thinking of the next year the historic racing news radio show I want to move on now because I want to introduce Les Thacker. And Les is uh, somebody who I've known for many, many years, uh, that he was competitions manager for BP for many years and then went on to to be a self-employed consultant in his own right and that he he worked with many of the greats of motorsport generally, both on two wheels and on four. And the man behind all of those um, cars that we're talking about with this part of the show, the shadow cars, was Don Nichols. And he was as much an enigma as his team were mysterious. Now, Paul, those glorious black cars with UOP sponsorship they were something special weren't they? they they were even if you know I remember watching it in glorious black and white and they somehow stood out and uh, 
I always lusted after there was a Corgi model of the uh, the UOP Shadow, and I always really, really wanted that car. That was wonderful. Um, Les was kind enough to share some of his thoughts about Don Nichols and uh, and their relationship, and some very interesting things came out of that. I started by asking Les just how they met and how they formed their friendship. Les, you were a BP man for much of your motorsport life. And as we know, Don was sponsored for much of his motorsport life by UOP, which is a different oil company. So how did your friendship come about? Well, it's a uh, uh, very, uh, that's a, a pretty good question to start off with, actually, Paul, because uh, uh, the UOP bit is uh, uh, quite pertinent in terms of how I came in contact with uh, Don. Um, Don was uh, into UOP, Universal Oil Products, in a very big way. He had a very warm relationship with, I think it was John Logan, who was the president or CEO of uh, uh, UOP, all going along very well. And I saw Don, uh, obviously, events from about 74 onwards but uh, the UOP thing went badly wrong I think towards the end of 75 when the Signal Oil Corporation who I'd come across when I was out in uh, Belgium in their 60s uh, took over UOP and um, of course the, the usual thing happens on takeovers um, it doesn't matter how amicable it is there, there's always a change of strategy and structure and all the rest of it so john i believe left towards the end of 75 uh so 76 it was and i think it was probably the early part of 76 uh, i i can't tell you exactly because i haven't got the bp records although i got all my own uh fairly extensive documentation uh from uh, when i uh, started my own company and got involved with uh, uh, with uh, Don. Uh, I got a phone call. I was pretty sure it was from Jackie Oliver, um, saying, um, "Could we meet? And um, could I introduce you to uh, Don uh, Nichols, who you probably know, the boss of Shadow? He's flying over from the states sometime next week. Could we set a date? And would you be kind enough to come and meet him?" Well, it was obvious what they were going to talk about. Um, but uh, this was a, an extraordinary uh, meeting in terms of it totally opened my eyes to a different way of doing things. Uh, what ha happened was, I remember it vividly, we met at the Europa Hotel in Grosvenor Square in the afternoon. It was about two o'clock, so it wasn't a lunch affair. And met by Jackie and they'd... Uh, rented a small banqueting suite, something much bigger than a conference room anyway. And in there, there was um, a small buffet laid out. And uh, I'm pretty sure there was a shadow car there. They got in there as well. And I was introduced to Don, who obviously I'd seen, but never actually met before. And um, it was very interesting because I'd, uh, you know, I probably got, what, 20 or 30 um, proposals a week into BP as any large company would <laughs> really? get. Yeah. Um, and that was without phone calls because all the phone calls would be filtered by your secretary. Uh, but there was a, 
uh, quite a volume of stuff came in all through the year for uh, uh, support or sponsorship. And most of these were the usual things. And uh, you've probably seen them for like the the sort of thing. It'd be a letter saying, uh, uh, we need a zillion pounds. Uh, We'll put your uh, logo on our car. Um, You know, our clothing (laughs) will have your logo on and uh, you'll get a bit of press coverage. Um, And and that was it. Now, don't forget, this was pre or PCs had only just arrived, I think, in the early 70s. They were those IBM PCs with a sort of nine inch uh, black and white screen, uh, very little software. There was no Adobe PowerPoints or uh, uh, Light uh, Photoshop or Lightroom or any of that sort of stuff. So um, I was pleasantly surprised that A, uh, the amount of graphics they had around the room, uh, but the most interesting thing of all was that they had bothered between them to research what they thought was a BP problem, marketing problem, and tailored the whole proposal around this problem. Well, that had never happened before. You know, all I'd ever seen in terms of, and it didn't matter who it came from, proposals was this sort of um you know, we're this, here's a bunch of our press cuttings, aren't we great? Can we have some money? That was the, <laughs> that was the sort of average thing that went on. Uh, so I was very, very impressed with this. And the two individuals, um, Jackie and uh, Don, were totally different. Jackie was, uh, shall we say, I think aggressive is too hard a term, but he was very punchy, punchy salesman, where Don was... Uh, the diplomat, statesman-like, uh, very cool, um, and uh, but still a superb salesman. And the other great thing about Don, I found, was he actually listened. Now, it might, might sound a bit strange, but listening is a characteristic which is uh, very much uh, missing in a lot of... Uh, uh, executives and uh, they never actually listen uh, and so I found it it, it was um, a very interesting dynamic dynamic the pair of them and it was um, very very well put together the most professional presentation I'd, I'd seen uh, now unfortunately politically there, there was a couple of really good reasons why I couldn't run with it you might recall that in uh, 74, I think it was, late 74, uh, the Arab states, the OPEC nations got together and uh, turned the oil supply off. Now, it uh, didn't matter too much in America because America always had a strategic reserve of oil underground which um, for this likely event. But it hit Europe and the rest of the world as you probably recall very hard yeah, yeah so motorsport really in lots of ways was lucky to survive that and there was uh, all those things about you know a 707 jet going across the to the atlantic uh, uses more fuel than all motorsport all that sort of thing but politically we we couldn't run with it now uh, we've got to go through a a good many years uh, past i mean don was still around but uh, there was the problems, as you remember, with um, uh, the falling out between uh, Jackie and uh, and Don. And um, finally, I think in 1980, Don 
uh, sold out to, I think it was Teddy Yip, Theodore, pretty sure it was. Um, and um, I never really saw Don again. Uh, fast forward a bit, as you remember from interviews we'd done before, I left BP in 85 to start my own marketing company up. And um, uh, I, not wishing really to do motorsport because I'd done it for so long, I wanted to go in a totally different direction. But within about six or seven months, BP had got on to me and asked me if I'd consult on various matters, which um, became stronger and stronger, in fact, to the, to the extent that they insisted that I spend two days a week at the research centre at Sunbury, and there they provided offices for me and a secretary and all the rest of it, um, which I couldn't really refuse because it was, uh, you know, the 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 big company embracement of everything, you know, and uh, yeah. Um, so um, I used to spend two or three days a week at Sunbury, uh, basically firefighting for BP, I suppose. Um, anyway, one day it must have been about eighty eight, eighty nine, and don't forget I hadn't heard from Donald, seen him for well, must be ten, twelve years. A secretary came in and said, um, uh, "I've got a chap on the phone here." Uh, he sounds like he's an American. He's ringing from France, Paris. He says he knows you and he insists on speaking to you. Um, I said, oh, you know, what's his name? And, he, and he, she said, well, it's Don, a chap called Don Nichols. I, I said, oh, yeah I, yeah, I do recall Don Nichols. Anyway, Don came on the phone and uh, uh, he'd established as a base in uh, Europe. He was, when he was in Europe, he was living on a, houseboat in a rather nice part of uh, Paris on the Seine. And, uh, Very nice. <laughs> so he said, would you mind, uh, can I come across and discuss something with you? Um, so I said, yeah, okay, Don, what, what is it? Motorsport, sponsorship, something like that? Well, no, not really. It's nothing to do with that. Um, uh, so I said, well, anything to do with BP? He said, well... Perhaps it might be. You're terribly vague about the whole thing. Um, so I said, well, look, we've, we'd better not meet here at BP. It's not quite right if you're going to talk about something totally up. We'll meet at my, my office, you know, my other office. So uh, anyway, he came across and basically what he laid down was um, the defence project. And uh, he'd, he'd, he'd got some information on me anyway and... Uh, um, and also with the connection with BP, thought that um, uh, I could be of uh, of help on this project. So uh, that was really my my big meeting with Don, which led on to um, a very warm friendship and uh, an awful lot of projects with him. And those were those were not exclusively motorsport then. No, no, there was the odd thing that came in. Uh, but he had, um, I think, basically from about 1979, 1980, he spent a great deal of time um, and uh, uh, and resource on this uh, project, um, and he got an he'd got a a, a very good uh, base for it, and it was way ahead of its time. It was um, really a special forces type vehicle um which 
you know, everybody thinks of military vehicles as Humvees and that sort of thing. It was, mm. it was, it was nothing like that. It, it was a, a niche market, uh, which um, he'd done a lot of research on, got a couple of prototypes built. He'd got Trevor Harris involved as well. And, um, really? Yeah. So because um, he was the he was the chap who did that that original really strange low line the yeah. first ever shadow didn't he yeah and Trevor had worked for I I met Trevor Trevor on in one of my visits over to the states uh, and Trevor an absolute brilliant innovator um, I, I mean uh, in a different talk, sort of way he 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 was a visionary like Don in many ways. Uh, and I think Trevor had done his early work at Boeing. It seems to strike a bell. Um, but anyway, I got involved in this project in a fairly big way uh, while still consulting with um, uh, BP. And of course, the, the, uh, what he was interested in, in terms of the input from BP as well, at the research centre, they had, um, well, unbelievable facilities for engine testing and all that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. So uh, th there was some sort of uh, tie-up there. So that's really my the beginnings of how I really met Don uh, uh, and the start of a, a very warm, warm friendship. I mean, he, he, he was a military man way, way before that, wasn't he? I mean, we, we know, I think it's fairly well documented that... Uh, he was he was on the Normandy landings, uh, and that not only was he on the Normandy landings, but he was a uh, pathfinder paratrooper, and so therefore went in before anybody else to uh, to make sure that it was pretty pretty safe. Is a ridiculous statement when you talk about yeah. the Normandy landings. Then he went to um, after the war. He he went to Japan, didn't he? Well, he went. Went to Japan and um, uh, set up, uh, f well, first of all, Goodyear. Uh, but uh, then he, he, he set up an organization for Firestone. And shall we say that was, um, uh, that was successful, but it was also useful in another, in another way. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I know that you're speaking um, very, very guardedly, Les, and I, and I do understand why, uh, because clearly the, um, the epithet of, of the man of mystery was never more appropriate than talking about Don Nichols. And that uh, I do know that there are there are certain things which most people don't know about Don Nichols and uh, that certainly we're not in a position to talk about today. But his, uh, yes, his his time in Japan with with Firestone, in inverted commas, um, was certainly perhaps the start of the Don Nichols story. And, and then what was it, do you think, having known him, that drove him into motorsport? Because... I've I've never been quite sure whether he was a racer through and through, or whether he was a businessman that went racing. And which, what what would your feeling be about him in that? Sense? Well, there's, there's I I think Pete's book is an extraordinary uh, perceptive book, a very uh, incredibly well researched book because he had to. Uh, uh, 
he had to write it with input from Don, but limited input. And uh, I know there is a, quite a bit in there about uh, uh, Don's sort of uh, view of that it was art, you know, and these things that he manufactured in racing was art and all the rest of it. I think it's more simple than that. Uh, I, I think that uh, his time in uh, Japan uh, with uh, his uh, import-export agency and also... Uh, most of the stuff was automobile related, uh, that that was a natural progression. Being a, he's a, he was a really competitive guy. Uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, I think that was a natural progression into uh, motorsport. Uh, how it led to uh, Can-Am uh, or sports car racing in the States, I don't really know. I think it was just that that was a, an opportunity um, and that was a little bit more exciting and a much more wider field than doing, um, shall we say, um, any of the other things like uh, uh, saloon racing over there or uh, sort of club type club, uh, sports car racing. I, I just think the natural competitive uh, element of Don um, and he probably worked out that uh, there was an opportunity as well. Um, to uh, to make a mark in it, and I think that's how he got into it. Um, you know, I I could be shot down over that. I, that that's just my own view of it. Obviously, uh, his his time with with Shadow was you know, they had highs and lows. Um, they didn't ever quite break into that rarefied atmosphere of maybe being a a top three team, but. Nonetheless, they were they were there or thereabouts, and then of course came the breakup, where uh, Tony Southgate, Franco Ambrosio, um, Southgate obviously was the designer. Franco Ambrosio was a sponsor and uh, a money man. Alan Reese, the team manager, and particularly Jackie Oliver, went off and started Arrows. Uh, and let's let's face it, they stole the design of the shadow car and tried to race it as an arrows and were, were thrown out in the high court for it. But did that break up hurt Don? Uh, immensely. We spoke about it. And again, there's lots of um, information. I, I, it would be uh, totally unethical of me to uh, speak about it. But he was very, very, very hurt. Uh, Don was a very loyal guy. Um, uh, he, he, I noticed there was a photograph somewhere I saw of him with a uh, U.S. Marine Corps combat jacket on. I don't think he was ever in the. He certainly. Well, he might have had. Yeah, I'm, I forget. He might have had some involvement with them in Korea. Um, uh, but you know the 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 USMC, the United States Marine Corps motto is. Uh, Samper Fidelis, uh, uh, always loyal, and that mm. that in in a way sums up Don. He uh, to people who I mean he was very very friendly with John uh, Logan and also the Swiss guy who used to go and see uh, Henri Villinger was it? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, the tobacco guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he always talked very highly of him as well. So 
but I don't think um, I don't think he he um, accepted uh, disloyalty easily, and uh, uh, I worked with Jackie as well later on, and uh, uh, I can only say of Jackie in my professional dealings with him, everything that was on the contract he um, he presented. Absolutely to the letter of the law. Uh, I couldn't have asked more of uh, Jackie in my dealings with him uh, in, ter um, in terms of uh, providing what they said they were going to provide. Um, but I never really broached that subject too much with Don. He, in lots of conversations we had, he was very, very bitter about it. Now, I know that um, in Pete's book, uh, I think there's a quote from... Jackie saying that they did make up at the end. Um, uh, I can only take Jackie's word for that because I, I've no knowledge if they did or didn't. I don't know. But um, I, I know Don was very, very, very upset about it. Yeah. And, and clearly that was something which was there or thereabouts because Shadow was never really the same again after after that that walk out by those key people and and as you said you've you've mentioned Pete Lyon's excellent book and and we we really should trail that properly that uh, it is a, an extremely good book by by Pete Lyons about um and it's called Don Nichols Man of Mystery the Shadow Racing Team I think um but Don sort of um, went disappeared from the scene after a little while, but he he sort of whilst he fell into his own little world, perhaps he hang, hanging on to an awful lot of memorabilia and and cars and and everything else. I think, and I I know you've told me in the past that you went out and saw some of the stuff that was there in large warehouse units. It's just so. Don, you know, not a sort of um, uh, a fantastic McLaren type um, <laughs> operation, a very dowdy, uh, very secure warehouse in uh, in sort of downtown Salinas. And of course, when you think about it, he had virtually every uh, car they'd manufactured. Uh, I mean, it was uh, he had this sort of. Um, Three on one side of the warehouse, it'd be three stories high, the whole length of the warehouse, and it was just stacked with cars and monocoques and spare parts. And we'd have sort of strategic discussions in his office, um, in this very nondescript, um, uh, very secure, you know, but very nondescript yeah. warehouse. And that was Don, you know, don't advertise the fact that uh, what could be in here. And it, it it all leads back to his past, if you follow me. You know, this business. Yeah. Of, uh, 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 you don't. Um, uh, I remember an American saying to me once, uh, we, we were talking about going to a, a um, rather rough part of town. And he, he came up with this lovely term. And he said, if I was you, sir, I'd merge. And. Uh, <laughs> when, when yeah. I think about when I think about Don and the warehouse, it merged. You know, so you didn't advertise that you had 
a few million pounds worth of, uh, or a few million pounds worth now of uh, race cars there. And they were all there, the, the Formula One cars and the Can-Am cars and, and Ab- everything. Was- absolutely everything he had there. Um, yeah, filing, cup- <laughs> filing cabinets full of stuff. And he was an absolute workaholic. I mean, I'd go over there and he'd, uh, I'd fly into Montreux and he'd pick me up and uh, we never stopped. He just, um, he just worked, 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 worked. I mean, when we were doing this defence thing, I, I went through a, uh, a few files uh, uh, yesterday and this morning. And these files are lever files about four inches thick. And there's about six of them. I mean, I used to get, um, uh, uh, not emails, obviously. I used to get faxes. I'd get three or four faxes a day from him. He just really? never, <laughs> never stopped. I mean, he was unbelievable. Um, uh, uh, and um, absolutely amazing in his uh, his work, um, uh, uh, his work ethics. You know, it's unbelievable. I mean, obviously, and finally... Just looking back on on Don Nichols, that how would you sum up that that enigma of of a man? I know that's probably the most difficult thing to ask you, but but how would you sum him up? Yeah, a very good question. Uh, um, a man of mystery, obviously, but a very very genuine man. Uh, if you were friends with him. Um, he was very generous. I mean, I took a team out to um, uh, Japan, Indonesia, and Malaya, uh, the 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 works uh, Red Bull Ducati team, and I took the whole team out. And, That's when uh, you were when you were running that. Yeah, yeah, and I said yeah. to Don, um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a, a bit fearful. I'm going to Japan um, for a, a race meeting. And uh, then it's uh, Indonesia and uh, uh, Malaya. But I said, I'm a bit worried about Japan because I don't speak Japanese. He said, oh, it's not a problem. I'll come out. And I said, what? (laughs) He said, no, no, no. He said, I'll fly out. And this was another interesting insight into Don. Um, He said, uh, Red Bull, he said, oh. And, of course, Red Bull weren't, uh, I mean, they're a big company, but they weren't as they are known in motorsport today. Anyway, Don flies out from uh, California, uh, meets us at um, Times' uh, visit perfectly, meets us at the airport because nobody spoke any Japanese. There was very little English signage in those days either. Um, but he had with him two, uh, shall we say, Japanese gentlemen, middle-aged Jap- Japanese gentlemen, who uh, were obviously incredibly deferential to him. He spoke perfect Japanese all the time to them. Uh, They were always two paces behind him. I don't know if they were minders or what, but, I mean, uh, they were very deferential. Um, uh, But the amazing thing was he he met us wearing this immaculately tailored blazer, and on the blazer he'd had, uh, in God knows how quick he'd managed to do it, he had a Red Bull, Red Bull badge. He got a Red Bull logo from somewhere uh, and had this uh, very expensive badge made. It wasn't a sort of jacquard type cloth thing. It was one of those, uh, you never see them now, but they, they were made in sort of coloured wire, if you remember. Oh, yes I, yes, I remember them, yeah. 
Yeah, and he had, he'd had that made, and it was on his blazer. And uh, because I said, oh, if you want to come to races, you know, uh, come to races with us. So he, he, he accompanied us the whole time in Japan, um, doing all translation, and he was loving it. Um, so, as I say, a very generous guy. Uh, I don't know who these individuals were in uh, Japan, but um, he, obviously, <laughs> no. uh, he obviously still knew. And in terms of contacts, I mean, his contacts in uh, the States were just unbelievable. I mean, I've been through the files and I, uh, the stuff there, uh, I mean, senators, White House, uh, Pentagon, military, uh, he could go into anywhere. Now, I know Penny's daughter... Uh, uh, did a lot of logistics in terms of setting up, uh, uh, you know, his itineraries and everything. Uh, but he, the people he he knew were unbelievable. I mean, on one of the letterheads, one of the original letterheads, um, the the chairman of one of his companies was Curtis LeMay. The the um, <laughs> you know I. I, I and, and of course, none of these things you don't see any of this stuff in uh, because he never disclosed it to anybody. But um, it it he was an amazing guy. I, I was lucky to know him, lucky to have his friendship. He was really an anglophile, and uh, I always I, I always used to laugh that uh, he'd uh, he he'd always ask me. I'd always have a pot of uh, roses, lime marmalade when he came. Uh, because <laughs> that that was his present when he went back to Nancy. She was heavy into uh, uh, Rose's Lime Marmalade, which they couldn't get <laughs> in the States. Uh, but then he got another taste. He he suddenly got into Tip Tree uh, uh, Morello Cherry Jam. So I used to have to get a pot of jam and a pot of marmalade for him every time <laughs> he came. Uh, but, but that's the sort of incongruous thing about Don, you know, that... Um, uh, you know, there's this man of mystery, but he had uh, <laughs> he, he had these lovely foils about him. Les, as always, it's an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you so much, and and thank you for sharing those stories with us because those are the ones that we don't hear and that uh, that really bring the man um, and his uh, his memory back to life. So, thank you so much for that. My pleasure. We'll speak again soon. And that was Les Thacker there talking about Don Nichols and uh, his relationship on and off track with the uh, with the man of mystery. Um, Les mentioned a couple of times the uh, Pete Lyons' excellent book about Don, Don and his cars. Uh, it's called Shadow, The Magnificent Machines of a Man of Mystery. And it's by Pete Lyons, published by Evro Publishing, it's 75 quid, very well spent, and you can get that from everopublishing.com. Now, Joe Bradley has an eclectic view of beautiful racing cars, everything from Formula Fords through Le Mans sports cars to uh, Formula One. But I think it was, in fact, a shadow which uh, brought your Formula One fever to reality. Um it's bizarre. Uh, we're about to talk about Shadow and we're about to talk about Don Nichols and what his race car company did um, in the various series that he ran in. But um, the, the the connection that I have to Shadow is, is quite tenuous, really, in insofar as 
a privately owned Shadow DN3 was the very first Formula One car I ever saw. And up close, in reality, there it was. I was standing, you know, next to it and then out on the track. And it was a, it was a Croft Autodrome. And I'm going to take a guess at the year being about 1978. Um, I will have still been at school. And it was being run at Croft by um, a chap called Phil Bennett, who I know nothing about and have struggled to find anything about Phil running this car. Um but that's what people did, Paul, in, in those days. You you could buy a second-hand Formula One car from directly from the, the car manufacturer. And Phil Bennett ran this Shadow DN3 in Formula Libra events, um, probably all over England. Um, but I just happened to see it at my local track at Croft Autodrome. And can you I mean, at the time, this car would have been four or five years old. Can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine now somebody turning up at the Darlington District Motor Club with a, a five-year-old Alpha Tauri or whatever? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 a, that's exactly what it is. It, incredible. It was brilliant, and it it kind of blew my mind because up until then, I'd seen Formula Two, Formula Atlantic, which were quite common at my local track, but I'd never seen a full-blown Formula One car. And of course, that just sort of just stirred the passion even further to uh, to make it to a Grand Prix. Um, and, and I think, uh, so if that was 78, yes, I mean, 79 was the first British Grand Prix I attended. So that was um, that was probably the catalyst, Paul, seeing that Formula One car go through the uh, the old Croft chicken. Mega. But the, the shadow story started um, way before that um, with the the Can-Am cars and and their their first sports car was ludicrous wasn't it yes it was mental it was quite mental and it was I mean we've just heard Les talk about Don Nichols the man his military career um you know big kahunas come to mind don't they um <laughs> being parachuted being the first wave of of paratroops going into uh occupied France and laying the groundwork for D-Day. Um, well, it took big kahunas to drive the uh, the Shadow Mark I. It was, I, I can only say, Paul, when I've, I, I've, I, I'm not sure whether I've seen uh, a one in reality, but I've only seen, it's a, it's a cart, it's a go-kart. <laughs> it's, it's effectively got very, very similar dimensions to say uh, a 250 gearbox cart. Um, it's a, a an aluminium monocoque um, with the dimensions of, say, a gearbox cart with a Chevrolet V8 strapped to you behind. And the man given the job to drive this car was George Falmer. And early, early stages of the car's development, for, for, for instance, Paul, it started with a, a flat steering wheel, a very, at the time, go-kart style Um how you drive a car at you know 175 miles an hour with a flat steering wheel, basically uh, horizontal to the ground, running like horizontally box. to the direction of travel, um, crazy. He soon changed that, um, and, and George Fulmer is quoted as saying he found it very difficult to get full lock on the steering wheel because his fist, as he turned the steering wheel, his fist, of course hit his thighs. It was such a tight confine. And it, it's incredible. If you get a chance, you mentioned uh, Pete Lyon's book, and it's a, it's a must if you're an aficionado of any 
kind of historic Formula One. This is a must for your bookshelf. And um, there's, there's pictures of this car in that current Can-Am field with McLaren at Mar- um, M8 and the like. And George Fulmer is literally looking up towards the other drivers around him. And he, he could probably not see the other drivers in the other cars because he was so low down. Absolutely mental when you think about it. And, uh, yeah, it, it was it, it changes changed the world, but not necessarily for the better <laughs> because no, nobody followed their idea, did they? That this was the time of McLaren and and latterly, of course, Porsche. But uh, McLarens with their M8s were nothing like that. No, not at all. Um, remember, um, it, it, at this time in between the 1968 and 74, Can-Am had perhaps two rules. Um, it had to be a two-seater and it had to have the wheels covered and it probably had to fit in the dimensions of a rectangular box. Um, but other than that, you could pretty much do anything you want. And Can-Am was at the forefront of innovation with regards to ground effect. Uh, the Jim Hall, Hall Chaparral's had uh, auxiliary engines, which basically ran fans that sucked the car to the ground. And here we have Don Nichols with the shadow, and he called this car the Mark I. Um, he had to go away to Firestone and ask Firestone to make a bespoke tyre. I think there were 10-inch on the front and I think 13-inch on the rear, which is basically 10-inch wheels were what your Mini had back in the 60s. That was the same size wheel as a Mini. Yeah, and however, yeah. they, they were virtually as wide as they were the diameter. They, they were as wide as 10 inches wide. And of course, uh, I, I don't know what connection Don Nichols had over Firestone, but apparently the meeting was kind of like a very swift one. And Firestone were all but uh, interested in, in, in creating a tire, bespoke tire for this one chassis. And the tires were so wide, Paul, that they... The, the, the way that if you, if you run a, a, a wide tyre, there's a, a, a concave aspect to the way the tread pattern runs on the road. So you basically just get the outer edges of the tyre to uh, attach to the road unless you put enough tyre pressure in to pressurise the centre part of the tread. The problem was that the pressure needed to get these tyres to run flat was nigh on 70 pounds. Which at the time, you know, a race tire would have been running 20, maybe 20 to 30 pounds, more than double that. So that rendered the car just to handle just like a go kart, a car. It bounced everywhere. And let's just add in how crazy these guys were. And it was a guy called Trevor Harris who was in partnership with Don Nichols, who was the designer of this, of this Mark one. Um, Add in the fact that the chassis, the monocoque, is so low, you couldn't run conventional dampers or springs. And there were literally, the spring length on the Shadow Mark One was literally three inches, which is, I mean, just have a look at three inches in your hand. You know, it's that was the level of travel in the spring suspension system on this car. And guess what, Paul? It wasn't very competitive. <laughs> but it could have been. That's the point, isn't it? That it's it's like so many of these things that it if it had been just just a second a lap faster, 
then everybody would have ended up with go-karts with seven-litre Chevrolets in them. Perhaps it's a good thing it didn't work in, <laughs> in that respect. It was, it was again, a, 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 a kind of insight into the way that Don Nichols went about. He wanted to be different. He didn't want to be conventional. And the objective of the car design was purely to go very, very fast down the straight and, and have a very low drag coefficient, which they achieved. The car was massively quick, perhaps the quickest car on the Can-Am grid, uh, on the straight. However, unfortunately, in road racing, it's the twisty bits that count almost more so than the straight line speeds. Everyone can achieve a, a, a maxed out 170, 180 miles an hour. Um, the, the, the Shadow Mark 1 got there a bit quicker, but then lost all of that speed, all of that lap time in the corners when it was bouncing from curb to curb and being a right handful for George Fulmer. And they they realised the error of their ways eventually, didn't they? Because yeah. they did actually come up with a much more conventional Can-Am car. Yeah, they, 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 as we went through um, those t- the, that, that period of moving on into the, uh, the following year, um, the, the Mark II shadow was the, the monocoque was bigger. It was looking a little bit more like the cars around it on the grid. And for want of a better term, it had the more conventional look to what a Can-Am car should look like. And it was, you know, they, they were getting towards that through 1972 and getting that car to be um, competitive and not really trying to create a, they were, they were, they were kind of falling into line with conventionality, if you like, and, and were, were, and from that, they were able to be more competitive within the Can-Am races. And that's when uh, when one Jackie Oliver came on the scene, wasn't it? And that he was the man who took them into Formula One. Yeah, Jackie Oliver came on the scene in 72. In now, I, I suppose it, w- it would be remiss of us not to, to uh, mention what Can-Am was all about. And what Can-Am was all about was dollars. There was a lot of money to be made in Can-Am. And... Um, there was a lot of money to be made in America, period, in in American road racing. And so you got teams like McLaren, uh, Lola. You got people like Bruce McLaren, uh, Denny Holm. Current state-of-the-art Formula Formula One drivers would flit across. I mean, the story of 72 was Jackie Stewart flitting backwards and forwards across the channel, 71-72, which caused Jackie to get a stomach ulcer, which knocked him out of the... Um, arguably knocked him out of contention for the 72 World Championship. You could argue because he had to miss a few races for a stomach ailment uh, brought on by this ulcer. Um, But it was a very attractive series and there was lots of prize money up for grabs. It was a very, very rich series. And uh, the cars were were state-of-the-art sports car designs. I mean, Bruce McLaren, um, a, a, a name that comes to mind, pretty much dominated the uh, the early seventies of the Canam era, so Don Nichols' little shadow team based in California was really up against it, and they you know talk about jumping into the fire. They really did put themselves in a, a boiling pot of motorsport competition, um, and hence Jackie Oliver getting involved, already a Le Mans winner, already uh, a Formula One driver, getting involved in the Canam operation, and it was Jackie who kind of. I think showed them over the the horizon, the, the horizon 
from Can-Am into Formula One. And it was something that UOP, which was the main sponsor and funder of this, uh, the whole shadow operation, was very keen on. Now, Universal Oil Products was one of the first petroleum companies to um, to bring in unleaded petrol. Can you remember when we had leaded petrol, Paul? Yeah, um, yeah very yeah, well. I mean, you, you had a choice of leaded or unleaded, depending on you. And I remember... Um, Having to alter the timing and ignition timing on your car, if you if you and everybody was transitioning into leaded pe- uh, unleaded petrol, it uh, it played havoc with your, your your points and plug settings on on your road car. Um, but UOP were very keen on getting involved, and um, and hence the the birth of the DN1, the the first shadow Formula One car that uh, entered into the 1973 Formula One World Championship, and it's. Hard to think now that they recruited not only Jackie Oliver and George Fulmer into the Formula One team, they also got Tony Southgate, who Mm. had previously, the previous year, designed the very successful BRM. And uh, that in addition to running two cars in the whole of the World Championship, they also managed to find time to build a third car, which they sold to Graham Hill for his embassy racing team. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? Let's go to Formula One, but also let's make available the possibility of selling cars to privateers. And yeah. Graham Hill, forming in his own forming his own team, he obviously liked the look. Who wouldn't like the look of a shadow DN1? I mean, yeah. arguably one of the most beautiful works of art ever to be called a Formula One car. The, the, just the, the shape of the, the sleek lines of the car, the smooth lines of the car, um, for me, was just, I mean, all right, it was a, it was a period of rose-tinted glasses for me because I was just a kid falling in love, becoming uh, passionately in love with this sport. So the Shadow DN1 was around about that time. So for me, a Shadow DN1 in UOP colours, which was jet black, I mean, the, the Shadow DN1, synonymous with Jed Black. I was never a fan of the Hill car, Paul, even though it being a Sunderland supporter and, and loving red and white. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it just it just looked totally different, didn't it? It just shows but, what a livery can do. But yes and no. I, I'm not sure I agree with you there because <laughs> there, are, there are some cars which are made by their livery. Um, there are some cars which are good-looking cars, but are enhanced by livery. And the one that always comes to mind is the Dan Gurney Eagle Westlake. Now, nobody, nobody, including me, will argue that that is one of the most beautiful Formula One cars of all time. But there is a photograph of Richie Ginther, who was down to be their lead driver until he decided he didn't want to drive anymore, testing that car at Brands Hatch, in plain pale blue, in plain dark blue, hmm. without the the white bits, without the white stripe up it, without that uh, gorgeous nose picked out in white as well. And sure, it looks lovely, but it doesn't look drop dead gorgeous like it did once it was painted up properly. And I think for me, and this is why I might disagree with what you say, hmm. that the the Embassy Hill car looks completely different from the UOP. Sure, Mm. it does. But if the UOP car didn't exist, you'd look at that Embassy Hill and say, that is a good-looking car. 
you know what, Paul, I can't, I cannot disagree with you. And that comes down to the basic design. I mean, it was a very, it was, it was a very low tub. Um, the upper part of the, of the, uh, of the car is completely fiberglass. It was all in one piece, piece of fiberglass that went from the, the nose of the car around and wrapped around the driver to the engine bay. Um, the distinctive airbox on the DN1 is a, is a favorite of mine. And I think I'm, I'm moving ahead here, but the following year, 74, the destroyed the DN3 was a very pretty car. And you could see where the heritage was coming from. The family resemblance was very much there between the DN1 and the DN3, but they completely for me destroyed it with that horrible, huge rectangular looking airbox in comparison to the, the DN1 of 73. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself now. <laughs> yeah, but I'm talking about the DN3. Yeah, it was a, a, a different looking car, but it kind of heralded the, the peak of the success of what was Shadow because we saw, we saw the, the car and the team become more established and that they were getting better and better, weren't they? Yeah, and they, they really meant business, didn't they? Because moving into the 1974 season, they signed Jean-Pierre Jarrier, who, was the, who had just won the European Formula 2 championship. So he was the, he was the new hotshot. He was going to be, you know, France's new hope of a world championship. And he, he was very much a coming man and very, very quick. Uh, but also, perhaps the, uh, the 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 man that was going to take Shadow's fortunes and uh, help them, and perhaps uh, allow them to compete for a world championship was one Peter Revson, and he came into the '74 season as a twice Grand Prix winner in '73. He won the uh, the 19 he won the British Grand Prix in '73. That was the one with the huge start line shunt caused by Schechter. Um, in the McLaren M23, the Yardley coloured one, and he also took that very strange race, race at Mosport, where it was a it was a rain affected race. It was in the very early days of timekeeping, um, so there was no electronic timekeeping, and it was it's arguable to this day. And think I think Howden Ganley still claims that he was the moral victor, and he actually won the race as the several uh, teams on the pit on the pit wall. Um, had the result completely different from the actual result, which was down in the history books as Peter Revson. But Peter Revson was was a very experienced driver. Um, he was a he was a superstar. He was a celebrity. Um, he was the heir to the Revlon Cosmetics um, millions. Um, he had that kind of playboy image. He was uh, courting and in a relationship with Margie Wallace. Um, a, a former Miss World. He had everything going for him. He had the image. <laughs> he had, I mean, you know, I mean, not only is he a Formula One driver, but he looked like he did. And he had a girlfriend like Margie Wallace. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, talk about the uh, the Lucky Club. Um, <laughs> and, and he was a fantastic race driver. He was a quick race driver. And he wasn't just a quick race driver in Formula One. He was a very quick race driver in Can-Am. He proved himself in all kinds of disciplines. So Shadow were going into 74 on a crest of a very large wave. But unfortunately, that large wave came to a crashing halt in pre-race testing for the South African Grand Prix. Now, prior to that, they'd been to Argentina and they'd taken the DN1. Revson was in the DN3 uh, in Argentina. 
uh, two DNFs, um, various problems uh, for Brazil. Uh, race of Champions, Revson went sixth. Again, not really, not really sort of turning the world around, not really setting the world on fire, but still lots of promise. The car being developed by Tony Southgate and then that horrible accident in uh, pre-race testing. Now, when I say pre-race testing for South Africa, it was very commonplace to have a huge gap between the first two uh, seasons races were always in the 70s, where it tended to be Argentina and Brazil. And then there was about a month, five-week gap between the third round of the series, which would be South Africa. And that was basically to ship the cars from South America across to the uh, African uh, Cape, Cape of Africa, the Cape, you know Cape Horn in Africa, for to go to Kailami, and that's how long it took. So that's why we uh, we had that huge break. The it, it's kind of it, it, there's lots of anecdotal tales of the Formula One drivers and the Kailami Ranch. You know, you must talk to Andrew Marriott about the ranch, which is a hotel complex where everyone stayed and. And and you know what, Paul? All the F1 guys just hung about. All the F1 guys yeah. with their wives and girlfriends, they hung about. They played tennis. They played squash. They hung around the pool. Um, and then getting towards the race, I think two weeks before the race, um, testing would get underway. And it was usually at this race where we saw the new cars be, begin to appear. Some would appear in the European season, which was next. But a lot of new cars used to make their first appearance at this race. And um, not to be, it was a, it was an accident caused by the ball joint at the top of the uh, the upper wishbone where the wishbone meets the upright that gave way at uh, turn two at Kailami, which is a very very fast right hand downhill right hand sweep, and uh, poor Peter Revson, he didn't he didn't stand a chance in a shunt like that. But then again. It was the 70s, Paul, and yeah, everyone yeah. around motorsport and especially Formula One, that was unfortunately very much a part of the game in those days, wasn't it? It was, and I think that it's easy to think about those sorts of cars and to look at them now, and they're not that different to look at from a modern-day Formula One car in terms of the layout, you know, the engine at the back and the airboxes and those sorts of things. And to think, yeah, okay, they probably had similar safety built into them rather than a 1959 front-engine Ferrari, for example. But they were very, very dangerous cars. Mm. And it was a it was a bathtub monocoque so that when you took the the plastic bodywork off a car in that sort of time in the early 70s, the guy was sitting there in, yeah, a, an aluminium bathtub, which came just to his hips. The bathtub was full of petrol and that there was no other protection. And they were very, very dangerous cars. It it strikes me, I've, I've, I've got this saying of, you know, Formula One drivers must have, lacked, must have lacked a lot of any imagination, not a lot of imagination, just lacked any imagination getting into those cars. But it's like anything, really. It's um, the work, you know, the, the way that we evolve and, and the years pass by. Um, we're glad, I'm glad to say that, you know, that technology uh, has allowed us to treat even motorsport as a fairly safe pastime. It's a very... Yeah. Um, all right, we're always on the knife edge with it. But in the 70s, 
it was very, very common to lose two drivers a season. Um, you know, 73, we'd just lost uh, Roger Williamson, um, Francois Sivert at the United States Grand Prix. Here we are, just start going into the new season, into 74. And before the season has really got underway, we've got one of the real celebrities and the real superstars of uh, the Formula One series already being taken from us. Um, it must have knocked the team back, Paul. I can only, I can't think of, you know, uh, of, of, you know, the promise that the team would have been going into 74 with and then having their superstar snubbed out like that would have would have taken would have given the team a bit of a knockback however because of the nature of the game which is you know what we've just described teams just got on with it and Brian Redman would you believe was the driver that was uh, was ushered in uh, Brian already had a, a, a new shadow well through uh, racing an American Formula 5000 and Can-Am himself. Um, and he raced the car um, for a couple of races, um, Monaco being one of them. But Monaco significant because that is the race that Jarier got the shadow DN3 onto the podium with a very fine third place. And he also picked up points at the next race in Sweden, uh, partnered by Bertel Roos, local driver. Um, it wasn't until the Dutch Grand Prix that we saw another boyhood favourite of mine um, debut, his shadow debut coming off in the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort, one Tom Price, um, Welsh driver, um, came through the UK racing scene, Formula 3, uh, Formula 2, and then he, he, I think he got his Formula 1 break with a, with a small car company called Token, showed his uh, prowess and his skill, in that and Don Nichols having Don Nichols seemed to have quite an eye for young talent, didn't he? And that he that, continu- that continues. In fact, the whole history of, of Shadow, which we'll, we'll, we'll see as we continue our discussion, um, Don Nichols clearly had an eye for talent. There he was, picked up Jarier, and now to replace his superstar, he picks up somebody who had all the hallmarks of being a future superstar and one Tom Price. And as you say, he'd he'd only driven, I think, the token up till that point. Uh, so he really hadn't had an opportunity to shine too much. The token, incidentally, was initially Ron Dennis's first foray into Formula One. Uh, and uh, that for various reasons, he didn't get to run it and was taken up by a couple of other people who renamed it the token and and hired Tom Price to run it but it was it was very much a uh, hand to mouth operation and yeah all credit to Don Nichols for putting somebody who was pretty unknown outside the the levels of motorsport like you and I are up to our ears but it was a a great thing to do and and what a team Jarier and Price yeah um, that the, it was a it wasn't a very great season for them seventy four in Formula One, um, fifteen retirements, uh, attrition being a big part of Formula One or any racing really back in the seventies. But while all of this was going on in Formula One, and there's quite a lot to manage there um, with the machinations of running a, 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 a you know an international race team. Meanwhile, back in America. Can-Am was still very much a part of the 
shadow on the sh on the shadow uh, wall chart of things to do, and they were pretty much dominating Can-Am with the Shadow DN4, which is one of the most beautiful two-seater sports cars you'll ever see. Moving on a bit to in the in the Formula One world, um, looking at the the DN7, that was that was a car which had DFV in the back, as most most of the grid had. But then they created a special with the French um, Matra engine in the back of it, which obviously was a V12. And that probably because there wasn't enough money about to, to make it work, it wasn't a huge success, was it? Well, there, there, were, there were quite some, some basic um, engineering reasons why that engine and that configuration wasn't as successful as the, the Cosworth engine version. Um, it was Jarier that um, was pushing to get the Matra engine. Again, everybody's trying to get that, that what uh, um, Mark Donahue would call the unfair advantage. You're just, trying to, you're just trying to get something a little bit different to your competitors that will maybe make you more competitive than your competitors. And of course, um, Jarier was thinking along the lines of, well, if everyone's got a Cosworth DFV, then, you know, I, I've got the same engine as them. I'm not going to beat them by using the engine. Um, the, the, the Matra, remember, in those early 70s, Matra was a, a, an aeronautical engineering company with some very, very high-grade engineering systems that and engineering works. Um, and, of course, Le Mans winners and uh, very, very uh, successful in sports cars. And the problem that the Matra engine had was it was a completely different installation to the Cosworth DFE. The Cosworth DFE basically bolted to the back of the monocoque and became a stress member. And you basically um, then mounted the suspension on the engine and gearbox. So it would very be a Hewland gearbox on the back of the uh, Cosworth DFE. And Unfortunately, the, the matter was slightly different insofar as it couldn't take, because it's a longer engine, you'd imagine that it's, it's not going to be as great with regards to being a stress member in the car. So it had to be helped by some bracing, some uh, struts had to be engineered in. I mean, a man who get his head around that, of course, would have been uh, Tony Southgate himself. Um, the engine was higher and it was also uh, heavier. So it changed the center of gravity. And it also carried more weight that kind of countered the slight increase in engine power. So all in all, the package looked great on paper, and it was something that they were trying to maybe, you know, find that little bit egg, find that little bit of an edge over the Cosworth DFV runners. But unfortunately, it, it didn't really pay off. And uh, again, that relationship with Matra kind of petered out in a very loud way. I would have thought. But going into '77. Um, we had we had some spot new sponsorship coming through. Um, we had the um, in the in the guise of some Italian sponsorship coming through. We had a new designer in Dave Was um, bringing in the Shadow DN8. Uh, people were just beginning to get involved with uh, ground effects. It was the time of the Lotus seventy eight, the wing car. Um, coming to the fore, and people were just beginning to get to understand um, what that meant and what the how important the underneath of the car was um, to 
to you know just as important, perhaps more important than than what was happening ab- above the, the the across the top of the car. So we've got um, Italian money coming by the way of the Ambrosio company. Um, that brings in an Italian driver uh, that was uh, part of the deal, Renzo Zorzi, and he's partnering Tom Price. Um, they have a they have a, a, a kind of a a mediocre start. Argentina they brings nothing. Renzo Zorzi scores a point in Brazil. Engine failure for Tom Price, but that must have been quite an uplifting uh, thing to have happened. Where you've got the the the, the B driver, the the the, the peer driver, Renzo Zorzi, clinching a World Championship point, first of the season. We then go to South Africa, and South Africa and Shadow are kind of one of those partnerships that you just kind of want to try and it's, it's quite bemusing really because the accident that befell the team and befell Tom Price was one of those accidents that really shouldn't have happened, wasn't it? No. Um, a marshal running across the track with some sort of irony to tend to, I don't even think it was on fire, but to tend to Tom Price's team, Renzo Zorzi, that had pulled in with, I think, an engine failure. Um, yeah, it was. It was an engine failure. Um, right opposite the pits. Now, the Kyle track in those days had that very, very long pit straight. It was an undulating pit straight. It was quite iconic, quite synonymous with Kyle Army. You see a picture of the Kyle Army pit straight, and you, there's nowhere else like it. Um, so the ever-eager marshals, um, only young people, I think, I think he was 19. I forget the the marshal's name. Um, But he runs across the track. And unfortunately, there's a bit of a brow. And Tom Price, completely unsighted, comes across the brow, absolutely flat flat out, top gear, and strikes the marshal who was carrying a fire extinguisher. And poor Tom wouldn't have known anything about it. This fire extinguisher struck Tom in the head. And uh, I'd like to think... Um, killed him outright. Uh, we, we we think that was the case because the car continued at unabated speed all the way down. I think another what mile of that straight where it went out of control, struck um, Jacques Lafitte as it went off the track and and um, and went into the catch fencing on the outside. Now, I had a, a chat to uh, many many years ago uh, to Hans Stuck, who was driving the Brabham, and. Hans Stuck was directly behind Tom Price. And he said that, or sorry, he was in front of Tom Price. And as he came over the brow, Hans Stuck told me, there was the marshal just to his right. And he said he just missed that marshal by he knows not what. And unfortunately, Tom Price tucked in behind Hans Stuck would have been unsighted. And what happened, happened. And I still remember um, that because I was a as a as a I will have been fourteen years old. Paul, don't do the maths. Um, I was fourteen years old. I was a massive Tom Price fan, probably because I loved the way he drove Formula One cars sideways. And I remember, I, I remember to this day the the motorsport, well, motoring news as it was then, came out on a Wednesday, and. Um, my dad dropped my motoring news off at school at the school gate during the playtime. 
And he said, I've got your motoring news because he knew that, you know, it was a big thing to have happened at the weekend. My dad's not a for- in no way a motor racing fan at all, but he knew how passionate I was about it. So I remember having, you know, motoring news in my, in my hand and just, you know, reading exactly what happened because there was very little TV in those days. You, you found out what happened the, the, at the weekend for a Grand Prix by, uh, you know, picking up the Daily Express, probably the best uh, Grand Prix reports with David Benson in the Daily Express in the 70s. Um, there was no TV. It barely got a mention on the news. Um so, you know, information on what had happened was was like, you know, I was kind of clamoring for information. I remember sit, standing in the uh, in the schoolyard, being like 14 years of age, crying as I read the, 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 the snippet yeah. of the report uh, because I was a massive fan. So that was probably the first driver that I was really a massive fan of um, that had been killed. And again, we, we talk about that. You, you can't avoid this kind of talk when you talk about 70s Formula One, Paul, can you? Because it was... It was a part of it. It was... It, racing it drivers was got killed, didn't they? Yeah, racing drivers were killed. It it was it was just, you know, that, that, was, the, that was the thing. The racing drivers were killed. And so, obviously, they, they made a, a very good choice in terms of a replacement for, for poor Tom um, in that they put Alan Jones in the car and that was his first proper break, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Alan Jones. Um, again, Don Nichols got a very wary eye for talent, hasn't he? Um, I was going to say Alan Jones. You look at Alan Jones back in the 70s and you look at current day Formula One drivers and they are absolutely worlds apart, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, um, I mean, Alan Jones looks like a bouncer on the door of any bar that I've been into. He's a huge guy, big shoulders. Uh, you know, a brazer Aussie, um, but what a driver! And um, he certainly found he certainly found a place to settle, didn't he? In the arrow, in the um, in the shadow team. And if you look back at that seventy-seven season, if you look at pictures from each of those races, that DNA didn't look the same car at, at two races on the trot. It, it was yeah. it, it was it always looked completely different, um, and let's not forget as well. Um, they brought Alan Jones in. Um, Renzo Zotti's checks from Ambrosio started to bounce. Uh, sorry, no, Renzo, Renzo Zotti's checks started to bounce. Ambrosio still wanted an Italian driver, um, so Patrese was the then the chosen one again. Yeah, where does he where does he pick where, where does he get you know he's, it's it's like he's got this Formula One superstar nursery going, hasn't he? And yeah. Patrese's given a, given his first chance to show what he's capable of in Formula One. Um, he had an amazing eye for talent. He did, he did, and and obviously Alan Jones got their one and only Grand Prix victory. Yeah, a very strange race in Austria. One of those races that will always throw up one of the you know an uncertainty. Um, it was Austria. It was a wet and dry race. And even Alan Jones was amazed to have won that race. Um, it was a race that he wasn't partnered with Patrese. Um, it was Patrese was busy with the Formula Two uh, commitment, I believe. And the, would you believe Arturo Mazzario filled the seat? 
Um, didn't do have much of a, a, a race. He had a gearbox issue that took him out of the race. But in this in this race that went from from wet to dry, it was Alan Jones again showing just how talented and skillful he was in getting that uh, that shadow DNA at home and uh, and in first place. And that was Shadow's uh, one and only. Bizarrely, I don't know how that happened. I don't know how this could only. I don't know, Paul, how this could be the only. Formula One Grand Prix win for the Shadow Racing team. I really don't. It was they had such bad luck in previous years when they had an you know a very fast car, a very fast driver, a very fast package, and luck just never came their way. Well, all the luck was on their side in Austria in '77, and it was never it was never quite the same again after that. And and finally, we can't talk about Shadow without talking about arrows because the decline after that that great victory for alan jones was slow but it was a decline and then the bombshell that was the the arrows story really rang the death knell for the for the team and for the project didn't it yeah it really did and i I can't help but think i mean basically the the core of the shadow team, um, Jackie Oliver, Alan Reese, Tony Southgate, basically broke away and left. Now, I've heard say that um, before he died, Don Nichols actually said he had no animosity toward uh, these guys from doing what they did and breaking away and also taking the the, the drawings for the, uh, the car with them because he ba- they, they basically weren't being paid and he didn't blame them. And, you know, motorsport is a, is a strange business. It can be an ugly business. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that one day Jackie Oliver will write that book and we'll find out his side of the story. I'm not, I'm not sure whether we, whether we have, but um, basically what happened was that these guys broke away and formed the Arrows Formula One team. And then I remember to this day the 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 Arrows car launch, which was on a, a snowy Silverstone pit lane. Uh, Patrese at the wheel of the white coloured car with Varig um, um, livery. Varig, I think, is an airline, and I think yeah, it's I a, think it is. Varig's an airline, and there it was um, on this snow snowy Silverstone. And you, you you looked at that car, and you thought, well, that's the shadow. It was that 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 surely is uh, the, the the shadow because if you look at pictures of the cars, if you look at the arrows, and you look at the shadow in 1978, it's very hard to dist- they look. In fact, it looks like modern day Formula One, Paul. To be honest, because yeah. um, <laughs> they all look the same pretty much, don't they? Um, it, they? They were so similar, and it all went to court and got ugly, didn't it? It did, and and uh, it ended up going to the high court. And that it was Don Nichols who won that battle, and it was proved that, in fact, the Tony Southgate design for the new Arrows was exactly the same as the car he designed for Shadow, and that Arrows had to produce very quickly a completely different design, which I think they probably expected to lose because they produced it in something like six weeks but um but nonetheless it was it was an end and yes interesting to hear you say say 
what uh, what we've heard from Jackie Oliver and we heard, didn't we, from from Les saying that although those uh, that those comments had been made and had been repeated in Pete Lyon's book, Les's view was that he never ever got over it and he never right. ever forgave them for what they did. And I think, you know, that's that's a sad epitaph for for what it is. Um, thank you, Joe Bradley, for that walk through shadow cars and the highs and lows that they actually endured, I think would be the fairer way of saying it. And uh, that it was a special part of Grand Prix history, wasn't it, Joe? It certainly was for me, Paul. Shadow was a team that was in Formula One when, when I started paying attention. And for me, you know, you you just look at the names. I mean, even as the team began to peter out, he still had an eye for talent. Jan Lammers, Elio, Elio De Angelis were the drivers in 79. And then perhaps, you know, the, the, the year of Stephanie Johansson, Jeff Lees and David uh, Kennedy in their final year in 1980, where they transitioned into um, the Theodore team. Um, Shadow, for me, will always be synonymous with 1970s Formula One, and it will always be a sideways Tom Price that I think about when I look back and think about the Shadow Formula One team. Well, that's it for the February edition of the Historic Racing News radio show. I'd like to thank Les Thacker for his thoughts on Don Nichols, Joe Bradley for guiding us through the highs and lows of uh, the Shadow story, and last but by no means least, to Paul Jurd for keeping us up to date with uh, what's happening in the world of historic racing. And as always, if you have been, thank you for listening. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 